It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And of course, the Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can check out our range of degree programs and short courses and all the exciting things that we've got on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I am delighted that after a little break, I am again joined by my partner in pod, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be back. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm a Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine. So today we're talking about issues around young people, democracy and civic or political engagement. In many advanced democracies, a decline in voter turnout has been driven by young people, and this has been causing significant concern in a number of countries. In Australia, a 2019 poll by the Lowy Institute painted an informative picture about this problem. Asked about their views on democracy, 30% of respondents aged between 18 and 29 responded saying in certain circumstances, non-democratic government can be preferable. And a further 15% said, for someone like me, it doesn't matter what kind of government we have. This compares with 22% and 12% respectively for all age groups. But this isn't just a case of attitudes alone. Australians are increasingly disconnected from what have historically been key institutions for governance and society. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, membership of civic and political groups in Australia, including political parties and trade unions, has declined across the board, dropping from 18.7% in 2010 to 9.4% in 2019. And while the percentage of Australian eligible voters between 18 and 24 who are enrolled to vote is above 84%, In excess of the national target of 80%, this may not tell the full story. At the 2019 federal election, voter turnout was the lowest since the introduction of compulsory voting, with some of the lowest turnouts in inner-city electorates with younger populations. So we're seeing a mixed and complicated and very interesting picture. 
So we want to dive a little deeper today to ask how young people are participating in Australia's democracy. And we ask, are young Australians turning away from democracy? And what can policymakers do to ensure young people stay engaged? And we are joined by two fabulous guests to talk us through these issues today. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our fabulous panellists? Yeah, we've got two great panellists joining us today. Firstly, we've got Intifa Chowdhury. Intifa is a PhD candidate here at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations, and her thesis is focusing on young people and their aversion toward democracy. Intifa's got a double degree in science with majoring in biochemistry and genetics and a degree in international relations with first class honours here from ANU. And she is still working here both as a PhD uh, student and as a research assistant and tutor. And joining us alongside Intifa is Professor Ariadne Vroman. Ariadne is the Sir John Bunting Chair of Public Administration and Deputy Dean of Research at the Australian and New Zealand School of Government for the Crawford School of Public Policy. She has diverse research interests, including citizen engagement, digital politics and government and governance, women and the future of work, policy advocacy and young people in politics. Ariadne is a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia and a visiting senior fellow at the Weizenbaum Institute for Networked Society in Berlin, Germany. Welcome to both of our guests today. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. So look, we'll start by talking perhaps about the global perspective on these questions. Worldwide, there's a decline in voter turnout in elections in democracies, which is disproportionately concentrated amongst younger people. So let's look at these global trends first. What do we know about the drivers of this trend? Is it a rejection of fundamental principles of democracy or is it disillusionment with the process, perhaps the nature of leadership or outcomes in democracy that explains this trend? Perhaps, Intifa, you'd like to start with that one. Thank you so much. Um, Obviously, there is a, a vibrant debate about what exactly is happening. And in my research, what I really like to um I am trying to tease out is what the nature of the problem is, obviously, um, concentr- focusing on young people. But I think, um, the answer to that question really depends on how you define democracy and how you see democracy and the key aspects of democracy. I like to divide it into principles and processes. As Sharon mentioned, that there is, in Australia, there's a bit of um, disengagement from um, the principles and also the processes, which are reflected in attitudes and also in behaviour, so two different aspects. If we are going back to the global trends, then obviously there is an undeniable um, decline in participation, which is disproportionately um, concentrated amongst young people. However, optimists like myself, um, I see that um, the solid the solidarity when it comes to um, endorsement for the principles of democracy, it's still there, particularly in advanced democracies. Which kind of uh, is is the root of optimism for me? Because people are still. Um, holding on to those principles, the fundamental ideals of democracy. However, the way it's being done or the way democracy works is perhaps not catering to their needs. And hence, um, what can people do? They're like, okay, fine. I don't like this. I'm not going to engage with this because I, I don't believe in this. It's not working for me. 
Um, for some young people, sometimes it's it's a protest attitude. So it's like uh, the older people, the older generation, they're not they're not catering to our needs. We've got employment problems. We've we've got all these sorts of um, problems which are coming up as we are transitioning to adulthood, and they're not being catered for. And hence, there's angst, there's anger, and then there's also sometimes they just switch off, being like, "Oh, this is doing me no good. So why should I engage? Or why should I participate?" which from a rational perspective as researchers we do understand it but then there there are other classes of younger people and also citizens in general who are changing the way they engage which doesn't mean that they're turning away from democracy but they're just doing democracy in a different way so you know with technology and with online platforms of participation society is changing the world is changing and so is the way we participate is changing. I think it's more important to also um, acknowledge that rather than hastily saying that, oh, people are turning away from democracy. Maybe not. Maybe they're just adapting to the, you know, the societal changes and changing the way uh, they engage. So it's a different models of engagement. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's a great explanation. Ariadne, what were your thoughts on the global perspective and the global trends in, in youth engagement with democratic process? I think it's going to be one of those conversations where I'm in furious agreement with <laughs> what she's saying. Uh, so I don't have a lot to add to what she's already said, but we can keep talking about the sort of general topic as well. So Interfar, maybe to, to take those issues a, a little further, and I'm interested in how identity might play into this as well. You know, you raised um, the issue of, of people kind of perhaps doing democracy differently, but also that a lot of the real concerns for younger people um, are not being addressed. So what does your research tell us about the way that these trends that we're seeing interact with identity, particularly among that generation that's much discussed of Generation Y or the so-called millennials? Um, but of course, that generation is not necessarily so young anymore. You know, if we think of people born in 1980, they're really approaching middle age and we've now got Generation Z coming through. So how do we see identity playing out for these younger generations and the way they participate in democracy and politics in society? That is a fantastic question. To understand why identity is so crucial to this generation versus, let's say, previous generation, we kind of have to understand how society progressed, right? So, you know, after the war and um, consecutive generations, a, a few generations after the war, people were still thinking about economic um, needs, survival, um, the survivalistic values and things like that, right? So materialism, right? But then as society progressed, even with technology, with advancements of, uh, particularly in advanced democracies, you've got industries flourishing, you've got um, welfare societies coming up in advanced democracies. I mean, that's how we define advanced democracies, right? Economically and industrially um, doing better than the rest of the world. Um, survival is not the only thing that people care about anymore. So people also have time and energy and money to think about other things. So with ge- this generation, I would say beyond survival, there are other values which, um, which are not necessarily 
economic, right? I mean, obviously, economics is important. Money is important. You, you, you even need money to do higher education, but that's a different kind of woman altogether. <laughs> but, you know, what I'm trying to say is that values changed over the years, right? Particularly after the 70s with the turn of, of, of the millennia. Um, and so this generation really puts a lot of weight into individualism and their understanding of what they are, who they are, and they like to incorporate that into politics. And you'll see that millennials and also, um, and in my research it was very clear, and Generation Z is the one after millennials, the way they do politics is um, quite self-actualizing as well. And a lot of their values and their identity comes out through um, you know, the, the way they engage in politics. So you'll probably see uh, a group of young people who are engaging in, let's say, climate crisis protests or, or online forum or discussion. But that's the only thing that they are engaging in. So it's like, okay, how does this affect my life? I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to engage with that. Let's say there's, there's another group of people who might be like, um, women's rights, right? And they're focusing only on that. So single issues and their movements that are driven by single issues, which really relate to their lives. So I think that is, is, is a big difference between millennials and, and the upcoming generations compared to, to the previous generations. So, um, yeah, identity is, is very important. And it also is a very big determinant of how and why people engage. I think it's interesting just to, to kind of add the, the research that I do is with younger people, so Generation Z, and you see some really interesting conversations around the reasons that they might choose to focus on a, a single issue. And that's obviously because there are an overwhelming number of issues facing the world today. And so there's that sense of you need to choose something and focus on it because that's where you're going to have the impact. And so some really quite altruistic thinking um, and impactful thinking from those youngest people that are beginning to engage in democracy about how they can really make a difference in the world. So I think that's another really interesting trend that we're seeing emerge. Mm, absolutely. Um, I was just wondering whether we began, we saw these, these identity politics issues begin to emerge earlier. So things like the Vietnam War or the, the, the threat of nuclear war that hang, hung over that late 1970s, early 1980s, and that may have defined the political behavior of some of those previous generations. Do, do you have some thoughts yeah, around that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, period effects. So things happening around us obviously influence and shape the way, um, we engage with politics and also, you know, do things in our, in our daily lives as well. So um, going back to the Vietnam War, for example, had a huge, huge effect, not only in Australia, in, in the US as well, um, in many parts of the world, actually. And uh, many young people sort of rushed in. There were protests all around the world. And in my recent research, I find that in Australia, because obviously it has an idiosyncratic uh, environment given compulsory voting, so you have to vote. Um, so because of that, I think period effects um, do have a lot of um, influence in the way not only young people, everybody in Australia. So very, we're very, very sensitive to to period effects. And um, I mean, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen next election after the whole COVID um, response in Australia. But that's a different story altogether. But yeah, period effects are something that are usually um, overlooked, I would say, rather even in research, but it does have an effect. Good point. 
Ariadne, I'm, I'm interested in how all of these issues around, you know, different ways of engaging with, with politics, with democracy, with society, um, and issues around identity that we've been talking about interact with trusting government. Um, and are we seeing, uh, globally, um, trends around the way young people view the trustworthiness of government? And if we think beyond Australia for a moment, how much do you think those issues around trusting government are driving what we're seeing globally around shifts in engagement with um, with democratic processes? Sharon, it's a really good question. And I, this broad issue of how we think about what it means to sort of trust in government and whether or not that is an impetus for how you engage and participate in politics is a really important question because it straight away shows that participation is relational and responsive in that people don't choose to engage or choose to participate in a vacuum. It's context-specific, as Interfar is pointing out. Uh, it's also based on, you know, your sense of efficacy on whether or not you think that having voice, um, getting involved will actually make a difference. And we've kind of seen in the last 10 to 20 years that there's been declining trust in the main institutions of government, and by that I particularly mean a, tr a lack of declining sense of trust in political parties and politicians. And when you ask ordinary people what they think politics is, that is their answer. It's parties and politicians. They don't necessarily talk about the public sector, government service delivery and so on. You can push them to get them to think about that, but that's what politics symbolises for them. So a lot of contemporary engagement of young people is not really driven by what politicians and political parties are doing. It's around the issues that matter to them in their everyday lives, where they see that they can make a difference. And that could be about expressing their identity. And I think the previous question about identity politics has been around for, you know, 50 years. It really sort of did emerge in that new left moment of the 70s. But what's really important now is the intersectionality of how we think about identity and how people use that both to have a sense of agency and a control over their lives and their political expression, but also to create new ways of thinking and new ways of doing and new ways of being an active or, or good citizen. So that kind of trust question that you started with is really important. And I think the COVID moment, which is the kind of context moment that we're living in, is fundamentally changing the economy, changing politics, changing society. And we've seen a moment where trust increased in Australia in politicians and parties and government to um, sort of, you know, keep us safe from, from COVID more broadly. But that was all, the researchers who were looking at that saw that that was probably temporary. It was a temporary blip of increased trust. And I guess we're seeing that now through the questions of vaccine rollout. So again, engagement's really context specific. Interfar's research and her paper just published in the Australian Journal of Political Science really shows that that really matters about how we think about these intersecting questions of how old you are, when you were born, and what else is happening in the political world at that time. Ariadne, what else are you seeing in your research around intersectionality more broadly? So not just age, but age and gender or age and um, your ethnicity, your religion, you know, those range of social characteristics that make up who a person is. How do we see intersectionality playing out in terms of both identity, but then the extent to which people or social groups have trust in government or the institutions of government? People's lived experience is really relevant to understanding why and how and whether or not they can engage or have a sense of efficacy. So that, on the first hand, is really important. 
um, you know, even Interfile's research and all the research on political engagement shows when you measure political engagement in traditional ways, it is biased to the richest, the most educated people. So it is a middle, even asking questions about engagement is kind of like a middle class phenomenon in of itself. So what we as researchers need to do is look for new and emerging and other forms of engagement that don't fit our traditional long-used measures to kind of see where new and exciting things are happening. And for me, new and exciting things are happening at those, I guess, at those less traditional spaces or in the margins. I mean, for me, it's been uh, the use of digital and social media, digital technology and social media platforms for you know, 15, 20 years now has been where politics emerges. I think most politics is now digital first. If you want to engage in politics, you go through you know, your local Facebook group, you have a, you know, you have a Tumblr page, you have, um, you know, or you're, um, you know, you're using TikTok to express yourself um, in half a minute. These kinds of things are really important forms of commentary where young people have agency over older generations. And I think that that's flipped the way we even see politics happening and that young people are running that in ways that a lot of older people clearly still have no understanding of and can't relate to is a really important shift in the way that um, politics happens. But that other question around um, cultural diversity I think is really, really important. Australia is behind the world and behind other advanced democracies and having a real and genuine discussion around inclusion and diversity in politics. I think this moment around the women's marches and how we think, talk about issues around sexual harassment and sexual assault is one thing, but we really need to have a much bigger conversation about, about racism and about inclusion and about diversity in our society. Maybe we should look a little bit more at New Zealand. They seem to be a much more mature democracy for thinking about these things and having an inclusive form of politics there as well. But young people forcing us to think about these issues, which is exciting. There are lots of issues there that we want to delve into a little bit further, but I think that's a good point for us to take a break and we'll come back and talk more with Interfa Chowdhury and with Ariadne Roman um, and pull apart these issues a bit further. So listeners, stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Ariadne Roman and Interfa Chowdhury having a great conversation around youth engagement with democracy. We've had some very interesting issues come up in the first section. And I'd like to go into this in a little bit more detail, particularly talking to Interfa about her PhD research. You've looked at how these issues are playing out in Australia specifically, and you've been using survey data from the Australian Electoral Study Election Study. What have you found about young people's engagement with democracy in Australia? 
Where my finding was quite contrary to um, international trends where we see that younger people are um, disengaging from both the principles and processes of democracy. Um, in Australia, obviously, we have to um, keep in mind that we have a compulsory voting setting, which is expected to um, create a political culture where political behaviour is supposed to bolster all these um, pro-democratic attitudes among um, all the citizens, including young people. In my research, I think w- w- the, the most interesting thing that I think I did was um, – control for age generation and period effects so you know there there are there's like a lot of research going on about how across age engagement um, increases and then with generation decreases um, but period effects are usually overlooked like I mentioned earlier so what I wanted to do and um well, first, I have to say that disentangling the three is really hard because they're linear functions, but I don't, I don't want to go too much into, into it. Um, but what I did is control for all these, uh, personal factors, uh, related to time and see which of the three, um, uh, is responsible in Australia in driving, um, endorsement for principles and engagement with not only traditional, but also online processes. And, uh, the most interesting finding is that period effects um, are the most important effect in Australia. And it's not very surprising given compulsory voting, but um, Australians are quite sensitive um, to what's happening around them. So the environment, um, when it comes to deciding not only um, at the ballot box, but also what sort of attitudes they're going to incorporate. But that also means that these fluctuate and they're transient so um, it's very important to not hastily conclude that, oh, millennial generation or Gen Z are culpable for driving this crisis of democracy. Well, I think that that's, that's a problematic rhetoric, right, altogether. So I think my research, what it's showing is that it's not only about generations, it's not only about age, it's not only about young people being culpable. It's about what's happening around. We have to understand um, the environment, both uh, political and social, also cultural, actually. So, yeah, that was th- these were my, my main findings. Yeah, that, look, that's really interesting that we're in a different situation in Australia compared to other democracies. And I think you've given us some really good ideas there about the sorts of dynamics for that. Entifer, you you talked about the importance of period effects. Can you just explain a little more to our listeners what you mean by that? Um and I'm wondering, as I hear you talk about that, is something like COVID going to be a critical period effect? I assume it is. Is something like Trump a critical period effect um, in Australia as, as well as the world? You know, how do we think about these period effects and what are the things that uh, are really mattering in terms of, of young people's engagement and attitudes? Um, again, a really good question. Now, with interconnectedness around the world and global globalization, information is traveling faster than we can think. So, pe- at the tip of your fingers, you, you know, no, not only like you know, gen- generic information, but information about politics as well. Even if you don't want to hear about politics, don't want to know about politics, somehow there will be something that will be um, maybe a meme about Trump. I don't know <laughs> something that's going to tell you about what's happening in the world. So I think, uh, and this is where period effects become more and more impo- important. So what's actually happening around you? 
And that around the bubble is actually bigger for this generation than it was for previous generations. Considering that um, there's a lot happening around us. So right now with COVID, um, it, it not only has health repercussions, but also economic repercussions, which will directly affect younger people. So uh, given this um, substantial period effect, um, not only in Australia, all around the world, I do expect, I'm 100% sure, although I shouldn't be saying that as a researcher, but um, let's say 99.99% sure that the way young people will engage will definitely change because of um, um, COVID. I, I actually would like to give an example from yesterday. I was coming back home and, and this um, young person, let's say in his early 20s, he gave me a flyer out for um, a climate crisis protest, which is happening next week, if I'm not wrong. And did you get that as well? And uh, he was pretty keen and he was like, please join us. And it got me thinking and it it made me happy, you know, political engagement, young people, Australia. Um, But then I went into Facebook to have a look at what their claims are. And they talk about how um, the COVID response by the Liberal government and how um, they are using a, let's say, not so green way of responding to it is going to affect this generation and hence they're protesting. I mean, if that is not engagement, I don't know what is. So, But um, I, did, I was just wondering about the climate change issue because it's a slow burn issue, okay, and, and so it's easy to frame period effects around particular crises at the moment and COVID makes it obvious. Um, but I wonder about climate change as a defining issue and, and ha- how you can separate those different drivers or the different period effects, the different issues that come through. Um, whether we're more likely to be defined by the, the COVID pandemic, which will last for a couple of years, or whether we'll be defined by, you know, the crisis that will occupy the next century. Definitely um, an area which requires more research. Period effects are um, incredibly notorious to, to isolate, obviously because there could be many things contributing to what we call the period, right? Um yeah, um, it is a methodological struggle and obviously researchers like myself, also Ariadne, we, we, we try every time we try and inquire about engagement, disengagement, there's so many things that you need to control for. I think the best way is to ask people, um, you know, if you want to know what's happening in their head, what they're doing, why they're doing it, ask people, ask younger people. And that is the problem. Nobody is asking them. I think... I think talks about young people need to have young people rather than, you know, um, looking at them as objects of, of um, inquiry, you know. What is their behavior? Well, let's ask them. Why are you doing this? Why are you not doing this? Why are you engaging in politics? Why are you interested? Why are you not interested? I think um, bringing them in into that discussion is the single most important thing that needs to be done, according to me. Ariadne, before the break, you were talking or beginning to talk a little bit about the way in which young people particularly are using social media and digital platforms um, to do politics differently. Can you just tell us a, a little bit more about what you're finding in your research about the way in which young people are engaging in everyday politics outside of electoral politics? What kinds of issues are the focus, but how that's, how that's playing out? Part of what social media and digital has offered young people is a horizontal, horizontally networked ways of thinking about politics. Young people can connect with one another 
on the issues that matter to them in the spaces that they create. So it's no longer vertical politics from the top down that you need to speak at government and hope that your um, grievances might be attended to or responded to. It's more about that kind of community building and discussion that happens uh, amongst communities and particularly communities of young people. So that's kind of important in of itself, that social media just kind of fundamentally changed the capacity to do that. In times before, people would have sort of local community groups and their engagement would be very geographically constrained or specific. So digital media, you know, gives the capacity to not be constrained by just talking with the people who live where you live or even being constrained by those sort of much more localised localised issues. So those connections are really important. Uh, but it's also, a, uh, it's also maintaining that engagement and involvement in times when government isn't responsive. So kind of the climate change um, movement, which you were right to point out, is this kind of long-term um, social movement calling for more action on climate change. Again, another area where Australia is quite fundamentally different from the rest of the world in its policy responses. So we still see that there's quite an active and vibrant climate change movement, but it looks from the outside and the way we understand it is quite episodic. We only see sort of moments or episodes of protest or engagement with a government policy. But that movement is kind of organised and continuing all the time. And I think the uh, my colleagues who study these kinds of things, I would particularly shout out to Philippa Collin at Western Sydney University who's been doing research on young people and climate change movements and particularly the, um, the school strikes that were happening in 2019. It's not that long ago, but because of COVID it starts to feel like it was quite a while ago. Those were a really vibrant moment of young people articulating that intergenerational inequities that are happening because of climate change and the effects in Australia. So I think that was kind of the conversation that they were putting into the public space, that once temperatures rise, who's going to um, face that the most? It's younger people as they um, get older and build a life for themselves. So I guess that was my long-winded answer, sort of saying that digital has created the spaces for those conversations among young people to build capacity for collective action. And Ariadne, you were, were making that really fundamentally important point before the break around um, the the importance of recognising, valuing, celebrating diversity, of creating spaces for um, different social groups to come together, um, including culturally um, and linguistically diverse communities. And you made the point that we're not doing so well on that in Australia. Are yeah. we, how are we seeing young people through the horizontal engagement, um, engaging with those issues? Are, are we seeing kind of leadership there in terms of taking us in new directions in Australia in thinking more inclusively? Look, definitely. I think we're seeing it both in informal ways, in the way that the conversation is being changed and led by young people who are often much more articulate in the way that they can talk about cultural diversity and inclusion. Um, but then we're also seeing much more organised groups emerging as well. One of my favourite ones is called Democracy and Colour, and it's kind of been a digital-first um, uh, online group that has started, which is about getting more culturally diverse young people engaged in politics broadly sort of conceived and sort of mobilising young people. Um, I'd note that Tim Lacerdo, who started Democracy in Colour, won the Victorian Young Citizen of the Award um, just yesterday. So it's kind of there is more attention being paid to these kinds of emerging movements and groups that are very much youth-led. So, again, I think that intergenerational discussion 
that is part of some of the broader debate is how do we um, how do we as I guess as older generations as older people I guess I have to put myself in that group very firmly now how do we learn to how to listen to young people and to listen to their grievances and their experiences and kind of not clamp on our framework of understanding the way the world is to how we hear young people. And I think that's the real fundamental challenge for politics broadly as well. Interfar, if we could come back to you there, you made the the, the point very powerfully that what we need to do is to listen to young people. Picking up on, on Ariadne's comment, you know, what, what's your thinking about how that is best done? Um, you know, obviously that horizontal engagement is really important in terms of young people be able, being able to create the spaces that they want. But how do particularly older policymakers and political leaders engage with those spaces um, how do they ask people, young people, what, what it is that they want um, and how do they take the lead from young people? Wow, that is a very good question, very close to my heart and I could talk on and on and on about it, but I'll try and make it succinct, <laughs> right? Um, I think to answer this question, there are two ways of doing this and both are important. One is an attitudinal change and the other one is behavioural. The first is, as Ariadne mentioned, um, older generations or older people need to um, set aside, let's say, uh, for a lack of a better word, pride and um, and see these people as intellectually capable people who um, have voices and whose voices shouldn't be suppressed, right? So they should be heard when they speak and not only heard, but also um, there has to be sort of like an attitude of older people that we will not only listen to these people, but also think and try and address while we're making policies. I think that is a fundamental um, value change that needs to occur. And it is going to take time, but I think, um, yeah, they need to be open to this. Uh, behavioral, I think there could be, you know, youth forums and things like that in the parliament. I think the parliament, if you, if you look at the age groups and stuff, um, with all due respect, I don't think young people are um, represented well in the parliament. So giving younger people a chance to engage in politics and also represent other younger people in the parliament is also very, very, very important. So these changes um, need to occur. Another thing that I would really like to say is the way we talk about younger people, by we I also mean uh, people in the media, not only politicians, also researchers, you know, um, we tend to say that, you know, young negatively stereotype young people, they're alienated. You know, those buzz titles, young people turning away from democracy. I think these um, these kind of rhetorics are also, um, they create quite a bit of aversion and marginalization as well. And it's quite discriminatory. And I feel like the way we talk about young people and particularly researchers, we need to be very careful about the words that we choose and the words that we use. If we start using positive, inclusive words, I feel like we'll make younger people feel that's in, in store that sense of efficacy rather than being like, oh, they're just pointing fingers at, at us. We're not even doing anything. We're not even capable of doing anything in, in a big policy scale. Yeah. 
So I think it's really important to restore um, engagement with the traditional institutes of democracy. On the other hand, online platform, I mean, they're unstoppable. You cannot stop us. <laughs> we might have seen some of that positive framing around the school strike for, for, for climate. Um, that there was a real sense that that was young people taking leadership and doing things in the political space that couldn't be achieved by older generations. And I think some of the rhetoric around that was very positive um, and empowering. Yes, absolutely. Interfer, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on, on something that I often puzzle about, and that is this concept of generation that has become so dominant in kind of uh, media discourse, but in, in policy and public discourse. And when you talk around about the importance of, of listening to one another, um, of being respectful, of, of seeing people as competent and able to contribute, I sometimes wonder whether our fixation with generation is part of the problem because we are adding on layers and layers of silos and we're creating divisions between groups of people rather than looking at where there are spaces for people to come together on things like climate change. That is um, a, a, a deep, deep concern for many people of all ages, um, although our older political leaders are often the ones who are not leading us in the right direction. But I think, you know, across society, that's not just a generational issue. So is it time for us to perhaps start to think beyond generation to how we can build divides across these silos? Sharon, I wish I could say yes, but I, th I think I see it in a very different way. When I talk about generations, I think I respect the fact that people socialize in different political, social, cultural settings. And once we are grouping people in generations, I think we are paying respect to and, and trying to be more understanding of how they socialize. Now, you might ask me what is socialization. So um, very briefly, when you are in your most formative, most impressionable years, um, things around you tend to have a lasting impact. And this is biological. Yeah, this is, this is not as, I mean, it, it, as much biological as it is a social concept. So I think taking out a generation from the conversation is not the right thing to do because all these political, social, cultural changes and the things different groups bring to the table, we need to acknowledge those to understand why people behave or have different attitudes. Because once we remove that and try to homogenize people, I mean, it sounds quite utopic, but it's, I, I think it's impossible. People come with different stories. People come with different experiences. So I think it's important to have generations, not to segregate people, but to understand and respect where they're coming from so that there's a healthy debate around it. So unfortunately, we're, I think we're running close out of time and um, we're going to have to draw this to a close. But before we do, I want to bring this back to policy as the primary question. Um, perhaps we'll start with Ariadne. Uh, how can these discussions, these issues that young people are raising and we're talking about today, how can they inform policy? Yeah, look, that's a great question. And part of it is then we're putting the onus back on the institutions for policymaking and not on young people themselves. So part of my sort of challenge to policymakers is how do you create uh, youth-inclusive policy? How do you bring um, young people's voices into your spaces on an equal footing? So part of that point about how do we kind of, sh you know, share power and share decision-making and institutionalise the way voices are heard and that they can make a difference. And I, again, 
we've gone kind of backwards on that capacity to think uh, more broadly about that. Uh, we might sort of, you know, resort to sort of consultation rather than actually meaningful participation and creating those spaces um, where policies can change and that they can be more effective policy making when they're better delivered to the um, community members who they're going to affect the most. Interfa, how do you how would you like to see these issues that we've discussed today informing policy? I mean, Ariane was run on the money that um, I think it's important to share power and really go back and think about what democracy is. I mean, democracy has just become a buzzword now. People don't sit and think about what is it exactly we're debating about or I mean, if you, if you look back into a fundamental definition of democracy, it's about inclusiveness. It's about, you know, giving citizens the voice. Now, if you take that or not give a particular chunk of the population the voice, then we're, we're not doing democracy. I mean, I'm sorry to say we're not. So I think the, the basic thing is to think about when we talk about democracy, what are we aiming for? And there you'll have the answer. We're aiming for inclusion. We're aiming for equity. We're aiming for, you know, citizens having the power to impact their lives. And those citizens also include young people. I think that's a pretty great spot for us to finish today's discussion. I have to say thank you so much to Ariadne Roman and to Interva Chowdhury for joining us today to discuss youth and democracy. Uh, lots and lots and lots of things to think about. And these issues we'll come back to later on in the year. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation. It's so good to listen to the uh, new research coming from Interfer Chowdhury, a really insightful discussion about where our youth engagement in democracy is both globally and here in Australia, where the story I think is a positive one. What did you think? Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Um, and it is a positive story in Australia. And also hearing Ariadne talk more broadly about those horizontal connections, you know, I think there's a really exciting and positive story there too. Um, it would be great to unpick this a little more and see how those sort of broad-based horizontal global connections um, sit alongside what we increasingly hear about in terms of place-based yeah. connections and place-based democracy and activism. So yeah. maybe a future episode there. I, look, I think there's there's really something interesting about that, that, that exploring the tension between those two models. There's some very, very interesting things that could come from a conversation. Maybe we should look at that for the future. I think it would also be great to, to look a little further at this concept of generation, um, whether it does silo people, whether it does bring people together, and whether that's become a buzzword that actually sort of covers over the differences amongst young people. You know, young people who are often talked about as a generation have very different experiences of the world, very different ways of engaging with their communities and with politics. Mm. So maybe an episode unpacking that mm. would be fantastic too. No, agreed. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, we did mention um, during our conversation Interfa's new article, and for those who want to follow up, that is called Are Young Australians Turning Away from Democracy? And it's just been published in the Australian Journal of Political Science. Yeah, it's a really good read. I highly it recommend really it. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us again on Policy Forum Pod. It's been great uh, joining you again, Sharon. We should be in the studio together as often as we can. Uh, listeners, we're always interested to hear your feedback and please reach out to us. We can be found on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. 
Probably one of the best ways to engage is our Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you can join quite an interesting set of discussions and give us advice and feedback on both the episodes that you've enjoyed and what sorts of things you'd like us to explore in the future. Listeners, please leave us a review and you do that through your platform that you're listening to. And obviously you can get our podcast through all sorts of different podcast platforms, including Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your favourite app might be. Listeners, we very much look forward to seeing you next week. And Sharon, I hope we're together in the studio again. I hope we are too. It's been good to see you again. Uh, But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye, Sharon. Bye from me too. Anagreta. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.